0: Welcome to What is Black, a parenting podcast that addresses topics important to raising healthy and thriving Black children and teens. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Duget, and today we're going to talk with author Dr. Lawrence T. Brown about his new book, The Black Butterfly, The Harmful Politics of Race and Space in America. Good morning, Dr. Brown. Thank you um, for joining me for the conversation today.
1: Thank you. Good morning. Glad to be here.
0: Oh, it's so awesome to speak with you about um your new book, The Black Butterfly: The Harmful Politics of Race and Space in America. Before we get started, Dr. Brown, if if you would mind, you know, sharing like a brief overview of the book before we get into the conversation?
1: Sure. Well, you know, the name of my book is The Black Butterfly: The Harmful Politics of Race and Space in America, and my book is basically about one simple thing, and that is we cannot make Black lives matter if we don't make Black neighborhoods matter. And that may seem like a simple statement, but I think that quite often, uh, unfortunately and rightfully, we as a society increasingly concentrate on Black people when they're killed by the police. And so therefore, Black lives matter. Um, But I think what I try to say in the book is, Black lives should matter before police killings, uh, that Black people live in hyper-segregated, red line communities that increase the chance of being hyper-policed and therefore being uh, potential victims of police violence. So everything about the, the life outcomes of Black people is shaped by the neighborhoods where we live, um, The policing is structured by the neighborhoods where we live. And so if we're going to be serious about making Black Lives Matter, we have to pay attention to Black neighborhoods.
0: And I think that's I think well, that's definitely what I found fascinating about the book. And as you know, we as we talked before the interview, many Black families, right, or, or Black children live in urban areas. And you use Baltimore. Really, as sort of the jump off for this this discussion about other um, urban areas that many Black families live in, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, how you how you came up with using you know using Baltimore really as that construct or that um, that centering to then take the book and talk about other aspects that are applicable to other other or the urban cities.
1: Well, I think the first probably. Obvious and selfish thing is that I live in Baltimore, so <laughs> um you know that has been a you know living here and seeing you know uh the city as and having the experience living here I think you know for ten years now, when I moved here in twenty ten it just gave me a lot of insight into or I wanted to find out like what is it why are things the way they are you know saw the wire um after I moved here and heard about the wire before I moved here. And, you know, so there are all these media images about the city, but I want to dig deeper. And even though the wire is really well done, uh, there's still things that it doesn't capture. So um, I think that's a big part of it. And what I found in my research was really Baltimore was ground zero for American apartheid, the urban, the institution of urban apartheid in America. Um, it's a city that is pretty much in the upper South, just immediately south of the Mason Dixon line. The northern border of Maryland would constitute the Mason Dixon line. And so Baltimore, if you're traveling down, uh, the highway from New York, is going to be the first major city you reach when you're going south. And so it kind of makes sense that this city that's very close to Mason Dixon line would have a lot of issues around what are the boundaries between black and white people uh especially when you move into reconstruction and then jim crow in the deep south there may not have been as many questions because the racial regime of jim crow was was very striking and, and strident so nobody questioned or there were there were questions and protest of course but Uh, It was very well understood, given the nature of white supremacist violence, what the reaction to a black person moving into a white neighborhood might be in Alabama or Georgia. Whereas in Baltimore, uh, with this proximity to the north, uh, those questions were much more fluid. And so I think that helps explain why Baltimore actually becomes the first city to pass a residential racial zoning law in nineteen ten on December nineteenth or twentieth. Um, and then it begins to that law begins to be it becomes a model for how urban apartheid is, is erected around the nation.
0: So Dr. Brown, if you could if you can go back a little bit and explain that concept of urban apartheid, maybe listeners who may not have a full understanding of I mean we may understand like South African apartheid, but how mm-hmm. that really applies even in the United States.
1: Right. Well, first, you know, apartheid, all it means is apartness, you know, being apart. Um, and I use it uh, in the tradition of several scholars who use the term like American apartheid. There was a uh, two sociologists, Nancy Ditton and Douglas Massey. They wrote a book entitled American Apartheid back in the 90s. Uh, there's another scholar. Um, Professor Powers at the University of Maryland, he wrote an article around um, uh, establishing our uh, apartheid Baltimore style, I believe was the name of that article. And, and uh, Mindy Fullylove, a scholar at Columbia University, she talks about um, apartheid in America as well. So in the scholarly tradition, I'm using apartheid, urban apartheid, uh, to really sort of continue the tradition of those scholars and to really sort of highlight the way that uh space in America has been dictated by race um to the degree that urban in urban areas you had like I say, the institution of racial zoning in Baltimore nineteen ten they passed a law that said if a if a city block was more than fifty percent black, no white homeowner church or business could move into that block. And conversely, if a block was more than 50% white, no black church, homeowner, or business could move into that block. Um, Now, on the surface, that actually seems race neutral because both races are impacted. It isn't until you realize that Baltimore was a majority white city back then that you realize that that was going to advantage white People more because they had more blocks that were dominated by white people. So therefore it would have blocked black people much more than it blocked white people. Um, so, and that was the beginning of urban apartheid in America. You, after that there would be other tools and tactics. You had racially restrictive covenants, the deed to the home, which said, often explicitly that a white homeowner could not sell their home to a Negro, which is uh, one name that Black people were called at the time or colored. So it blocked Black homebuyers. Then you had the institution of redlining when the federal government gets involved in the 1930s, and they begin to partition space by race and determine which neighborhoods receive access to capital for small business loans and home mortgages. So when you add all these things up, segregated public housing, segregated recreation centers, segregated schools, that's when you put it all together and say urban apartheid, American apartheid.
0: So thank you for, um, for explaining that. And I think, you know, the, the more that I listen to you and then, you know, reflect on, reflect on your writing, You know, the, what I think, what I think is so amazing is how you utilize, you know, you're a historian. So historian, public health, public health practitioner as well, right? So, Mm -hmm. and the importance of history, right? And then even how you intertwine and connect the concept of historical trauma. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and why history is so important, right? Moving forward and, you know, in addressing, addressing these inequities, right? But at the same time, how trauma also plays into the historical context.
1: Absolutely. You know the first thing is, you know you're a pediatrician, and you and your colleagues, when you see patients, you do two things. You uh, capture their vitals, you know, blood pressure, height weight, you know, um, anything that you can get you know from any diagnostic tool that you're using in the office. But the second thing you do is you obtain the patient's history. You don't just start treating patients and jump in and be like, hey, hey, so glad I've met you for the first time. Let me just start giving you medicine. Let me just start, you know, working on you. You want to know how did you get here? What's going on? Tell me about your family. You delve into the patient's history in order to sort of really create a, a effective treatment plan for whatever is ailing the patient. So I think what I've tried to do and say is that, look, the same thing has to be true for public health. Our patient in quotes, air quotes, our patient is the community. And we often have the stats or the vital signs of the community through our statistics. We have all kinds of data. Um, health disparities, health outcomes, and all kinds of numbers that tell us about the community. But quite often, public health professionals have very shallow understanding of the communities, of the histories of the communities where they operate. And I think that leaves public health um, in a terrible position. And perhaps this COVID-19 pandemic and the performance of America's public health system is is a reflection of that. We don't have a powerful understanding of the histories of the communities where we serve, and that hurts and harms our ability to be effective practitioners. And so that was really sort of a thing, and I talk about that in the book, like we have to have a deep understanding. If I go to a Native American community, if I go to an Asian American community, I To be effective as a public health practitioner, I need to know the history of that community. How did they get there? What are the issues they've had to face? What policies were put in place to create the conditions that I'm seeing in that community? All of that is very important. And I think the second thing is really uh, learning from Native American scholars, a Lakota scholar named Maria Yellow Horse Braveheart she coined and created the term historical trauma, which she really sort of defines as the emotional impact and devastation that entire populations can feel or be impacted by when a powerful group imposes themselves on a vulnerable group and inflicts all kinds of harm. And that can happen through war, imperialism, colonization, enslavement, caste, apartheid, any of those sort of mass trauma experiences can inflict tremendous damage. And what she says is that damage doesn't just impact the first generation, it impacts secondary and subsequent generations. So there's this intergenerational impact that's very powerful. And then there's a public health scholar named Michelle Sotero who really put that in a public health context. Her article is the conceptual model of historical trauma. And in that article, she outlines four main elements of the mass trauma experience. And the first is segregation slash forced displacement. The second is physical slash psychological violence. The third is economic destruction. And the fourth is cultural dispossession. So, Michelle Sotero's motto, uh, when it outlined, when I saw it, you know, for the first time, I was introduced to it by a White Mountain Apache scholar named Dr. Tanil Marley at a conference at Purview View uh, a few years ago. It just blew me away because I saw for the first time all these threads of research that I had been engaged in, but it was all in one place. It pulled it all together. And I was like, this is it. This is it. Like it really breaks down the ways in which this intergenerational trauma can be handed down from ancestors to descendants. And so I think that's sort of the framework that really uh, concretized for me uh, the way in which we could understand how historical trauma impacts black people in America.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I totally see those like the parallel um of the, of the, of the experts that you're referencing regarding this concept, this concept, this framework of historical trauma, and also really paralleling that with history, right? So throughout history and, and you, you know, you pull, you pull these different dates and these different events, right? That really are jump offs for why are we, why do we have these certain policies, right? Why do we have, you know, how, the redlining policy, right? and then you also talk about different policies in Baltimore city over time that in in some ways right were made to protect one population right and to to cast out another population black versus white or indigenous and it and it continues to be perpetuated today so i agree with you right so if we don't if we don't address our history and really learn and know that history then how can we really start to redress and 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 create, you know, create better, improved policies, improved environments for people to really thrive.
1: Absolutely. I mean, if you're, whether you're in public health or community health, whether you're in community development or urban redevelopment, um, and you know, any of these community economic development, any of these different fields that try to deal with how do we improve, you know, communities, especially redlined. Black communities in urban areas. Um, You know, you can't be effective, again, if you don't have that historical context. And I think that's what I try to provide in the book. And, you know, by looking at how it happened, I think it actually gives a, a sense of hope. Because so many people look at, you know, cities like Chicago and Baltimore and St. Louis that have high violence, high amounts of homicides high amounts of, you know, folks that are struggling uh, economically and financially, you know, the way Chicago is portrayed in the national news, the way Baltimore was attacked by President Trump, you know, called a rat and rodent infested mess where no human being would want to live when he went after the the late departed uh, Congressman Elijah Cummings. Um, This sort of the w- black neighborhoods are demonized and stigmatized in, in particularly insidious ways that prevent and block the sort of restoration and healing that needs to take place to make black lives matter. There was a, a delegate from Harford County, Maryland. Uh, her name is Marianne Lasanti. She called Prince George's County a quote unquote nigger district. Um a very vile and vicious way to describe the wealthiest black community in America. So you have Baltimore that's demonized as a quote unquote poor city, which is uh, there's, I take issue with that, but for the sake of conversation, you know, Baltimore is this, you know, supposedly poor city and Prince George's County is the wealthiest congregation or aggregation of, or clustering of wealthier black people in America. And both can be stigmatized and demonized by one Democrat, Marianne Lasanti, and on the other hand, by Republican President Donald Trump. And so, when you have that sort of uh, demonization of Black spaces, the marginalization of Black places, that has significant impacts on the types of policies, practices, systems, and budgets that end up being put in place. And so in my book, I make that clear that like there's this rhetoric that the Baltimore Sun uses um, in the early 1900s. They repeatedly used the phrase Negro invasion to describe home buying while Black. Black people were trying to move into, you know, these white blocks and white areas because uh, Black Areas in the city were overcrowded, and so wealthier black people were trying to buy homes and move on up, uh as the Jeffersons might say, <coughs> as the intro says, they're trying to move on up, trying to get a piece of the pie, and the Baltimore Sun which just put out this nasty rhetoric over and over again that there's a Negro invasion in on Stricker Street, a Negro invasion in Park Heights, a Negro invasion in Harlan Park, and that rhetoric animated. It it inspired this vicious white lash to Black homebuyers in Baltimore City. And it's that sort of thread that I'm trying to tie from, you know, the way in which we think about Black neighborhoods and the language we use around them ends up playing a powerful role. From Negro invasion to Trump saying, rat and rodent infested mess where no human being would want to live.
0: Oh man. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. And I, and I just wanted to go back to your comment about public health system, having, having worked in the public health system. And I think you, you know, again, you bring this out in the book, you know, or what, I, what I understood from, from reading, reading the um, sections about how public health played a role. And I was kind of amazed at how much public health, you know, it's, it's, the way I, you know, was I got my master's in public health from Johns Hopkins, right? So, mm-hmm. and understanding that the role of public health really is to improve, um, the, the outcomes where of, of health outcomes by, you know, tackling, tackling where people live, grow, and play, right? And, and so, and then to, to know that the way that the system is even set up with public health, you, you talk about COVID 19 and some of the response, communication plans for communities of color, um, even to effectively address and redress the conditions that set up the inequities for communities of color, right? You don't necessarily have the funding, right? Everything is either, either grant funded mm-hmm. and they're, and they're siloed grant funding and you can't do anything, um, outside of the, the parameters of that funding. And there's not enough sort of, um, additional funding, right? So that you, I'm going to just quote unquote say play money, right? To be able to really affect change in those communities. So you really talk about not only these policy changes, right? But how we need to restructure funding and where funding comes from to really, to really be able to, to tackle these issues. I mean, and they're, and they're valid solutions, but hopefully, I'm hoping that again, your work compounded with other experts work given COVID-19 and, and the elevation of systemic racism and its impact really will start help us rethink how do we practice public health, how do we practice education, how do we practice all of these systems housing um so so I think it's amazing, right You, you kind of shed a light on a lot of a lot a lot of things that need to be redressed
1: well, I thank you, and I think you know the I think the first major thing I try to say about public health in the book is that public health in Baltimore was actually weaponized and used to justify racial segregation when it was first brought online. And I think that's the that's the thing that public health needs to reckon with. In addition to all the things that you're saying, you know, uh, the Baltimore City public health budget uh, through the Baltimore City Health Department is approximately yeah, $120 million, $130 million. But only 29, 30% of that comes from the general fund, the city's general fund. Most of that comes from state grant funding or federal grant funding or philanthropic grant funding. Um, So in addition to that sort of fiscal financial sort of construct that, you know, leaves a health department unable to really dig at the roots of real issues, aside from what grants dictate that you have to address. I think going back to the way that the Baltimore City Health Department was being used Uh, In the 19-teens, you see uh, the health commissioner and the assistant health commissioner, they're working with Mayor James Preston, and they're using data about tuberculosis to say, hey, these Black people are diseased, and they constitute a threat to the public health of the white population. As it says, I'm paraphrasing in one Baltimore Sun article, so... And you see see them in the Baltimore Municipal Journal, you know, the city's official organ, where the assistant health commissioner, William Howard, he's writing about uh, what do we do about the Negro population? And the crazy thing is they actually understand that it's the housing conditions. It's housing that's really at the roots. It's unpaved alleys. It's black people living in wooden shacks in those alleys at the time without plumbing and sanitation. Without clean filtered water, uh because with the lack of plumbing, you're not getting that clean water filtered filtration water which was also being brought online, didn't have the sewer system hadn't been put in place, and we don't think in public health oftentimes about how basic infrastructure actually plays a huge role when it comes to health outcomes. if you don't have sewers, if you don't have plumbing, if you don't have clean water then you end up with infectious diseases like tuberculosis, cholera, yellow fever. And those were the diseases that, those were the epidemics at that time. And so they were actually working to finally bring those pivotal pieces of infrastructure to the Black parts of the city, the alleys where many lower income Black people were living. But they were still, so, and so the, In doing so, they actually were considered progressive because they were utilizing the power of government to bring this critical infrastructure in. But even though they were doing that, they were still demonizing black people. The mayor, Mayor James Preston, he uses public health as a rationale for increasing racial segregation Uh, because the the city ends up passing four ordinances. Because they kept getting thrown out of court. So when the rationale, the initial rationale of housing values, that the fact that black people moving into these communities is damaging the housing values of white, of white homeowners, when that fails in court, they turn to public health as a rationale for Baltimore apartheid. And so I think going, realizing that public health often plays a role in weaponizing powerful policies against Black lives, I think that's where I want public health to look in the mirror because it does the same thing with urban renewal. Urban renewal, you know, Black homes are either declared blighted when they shouldn't be, or in some cases they should have been, but then there was very little consideration, like, in terms of, you know, where do people end up being relocated You know, what type of rights do they have? What type of compensation do they get? And back then they didn't get any compensation. In fact, when slum clearance, uh, that process, it was called slum clearance when those tenements and wooden alley houses, a lot of them were torn down um, in order to build public housing in the 30s Um, and public housing at that time brand new it's a place you want it to be because, again, it's brand new it isn't it wasn't in the condition that it is now so when they built public housing initially um i believe we have the data i put it in my book it shows like you had you know say 1800 homes black families homes were torn down uh but then only 700 homes for black people uh were allowed or were built for them in public housing so you have this like intentional Housing shortage that's created, which, of course, if you understand the law of supply and demand with lower supply, um, but the same or increasing demand prices rise. So you have black people trying to find housing and there are fewer units for them to have housing. Prices go through the roof in black neighborhoods and then public housing is segregated, (laughs) doubly segregated, segregated. Um, both in terms of public housing being placed in black communities and then public housing being uh, units being segregated. So Latrobe and Perkins Homes, I believe, were white, designated for white public housing residents. And then Frederick, well, Douglas Homes, uh, Poe Homes, and uh, uh, another one, they were designated for black public housing units. So you had segregated public housing relegated to redline black communities and then the destruction of those black households that left them with that severe housing shortage and so public health was used to help justify that too because public health through the American Public Health Association they were the ones determining definitions of blight and then they were also the ones uh, determining which homes received code enforcement and then they were also the ones uh that could have given recommendations around how displaced people would be treated, and they didn't have a concern, any explicit concern about the welfare and well-being of the housing prospects of Black folks who were being impacted by slum clearance. So I think that's the thing is that I'm trying to get public health to realize we got to look in the mirror because we've justified and we've allowed we've we've given our signature on on policies that have definitely harmed black communities and black lives.
0: Oh, I yeah, I totally agree. And and I think a lot of a lot of institutions that um are are in that in that place of reckoning and trying to um you know, the hope is that you know they're really trying to to figure out ways to to do better. And I know I know your book also Aside from just setting up that history and laying out, um, you know, why we're, why we're, where we're at now, you know, why many urban cities, hyper segregated cities are, are where they are now. You also lay out a plan, you know, for healing. And so I was wondering if you could, you know, maybe highlight one of these strategies, um, that, that you, that you, that you'd want to share for moving forward.
1: Sure. Well, I guess the biggest thing is I outline a five step racial equity process and it starts with having a deep understanding that history we were talking about. You know, as a medical doctor, you obtain your patient's history in public health. We have to obtain our patient's history and in quotes, our patient is the community. So anybody that's working in the community, the biggest thing is a lot of people, they try to rush to solutions. Oh, you know, what are the solutions? Can we get to the solutions? OK, well, do you have an understanding of the problem first? Let's start right there. And medical doctors don't just, uh, you know, get out of uh college, you know, undergrad and then run into the to the office. Y'all got to learn anatomy, you know, physiology. You got to learn the knee bone connected to the leg bone. You got to know how everything operates and the way that it functions in the body before you can actually move into diagnosis and treatment. So my biggest thing for a lot of people is sit down, my book or other books, other histories, and really delve into how it all took place because that's where you will find the solution. And the solution is undoing the damage that was done. The solution is ultimately understanding, again, the hope is because people did this intentionally, because they did it through policies, practices, systems, and budgets, it can be undone by those very same mechanisms, policies, practices, systems, and budgets. And the same energy that went into inflicting the damage, the same amount of monetary damage that was caused, the same amount of Time that it took to inflict that damage, we ought to take that same energy, that same wealth that was stolen or extracted or denied, and we ought to flip and put the same energy for that same amount of time for the same amount of dollars that was lost into healing and restoring black neighborhoods to make black neighborhood to make black lives matter
0: so before we end, Dr. Brown, um, I just wanted to ask one last question. Mm-hmm. Um. this you know over the season of the podcast I'm really trying to look at where we go from here right and this here being the impacts of structural racism on the impact of health and well-being of black children and families in this COVID-19 era and I wanted to get your thoughts on how we can reimagine these systems in order to improve the health and well-being of black children and families
1: um you know there's so many failures with COVID, <laughs> so many hellu- failures in different systems. Um, so I think, you know, part of the solution is addressing those failures. We have a public health system that's rooted in a medical model. In the medical model, you treat and di- you diagnose and treat patients after they come to you. Public health is actually the opposite. We, we in public health are supposed to prevent disease so they don't end up in your office for the disease, and so we don't have a system set up to help prevent HIV, COVID, chronic diseases in any real serious way in America, and right now for COVID, I think the biggest thing that we don't have in place is a nationwide, well-paid, well-trained core of community health workers that can go out, instead of waiting for people to come in with the disease, right, Go out into the communities educating, providing well, working with nurses to provide vaccinations now that we have some vaccines on the scene. Um, you know, average, you know, really getting out the messaging around wearing masks, wash your hands. Do you need help with food? Do you need help with uh your, your light bill? And that's the interaction that public health needs on the streets, like the nation of Cuba. Cuba has the, one of the world's best public health systems and they go door to door. They have uh, re- areas where the doctor and the nurses and the community health workers, they take their charge with the health of a, of a specific area uh, in that island nation. And that's what they work on. And I think we need that same approach here. We're relying on people to show up in our offices uh, or we're relying on you know media campaigns and we don't have like an army of people to actually go out and make this thing real. And I think the other thing for Black children and Black families is, um, if I had to pick one, I would say universal basic income. That should be, you know, we've been passing, you know, these $600, $1,200 people May the Congress is thinking about 2000 the President-elect uh, Joseph Biden is talking about bringing the $2,000 back. All of that is tremendously insufficient. For the time that we're in, we need guaranteed basic income. I'm talking about let's do two thousand dollars a month, not just two thousand. And that's it. It should be two thousand a month. Um, And the and the lower your income, the more guaranteed basic income of low income people overall, because it would help everybody. But it would definitely help black families and black children. Uh, And and really the core, the correlate with that um, to throw in a bonus is really blocking and stopping rental evictions and mortgage foreclosures, because you got to, you know, the basics have to be met and housing is at the center of what people need to survive. So I think blocking, stopping, you know, picking up that CDC moratorium making it a broader moratorium on all evictions, all foreclosures, and pair that with universal basic income, that will help Black children and Black families in the immediate uh, future as it relates to dealing with the COVID pandemic.
0: Oh, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much um, for, for joining us today, Dr. Brown.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: to thank our guest Dr. Lawrence T. Brown for joining us today to talk about his new book The Black Butterfly, The Harmful Politics of Race and Space in America. I learned so much about the book and I'll put links to where you can obtain your copy of the book and learn more about Dr. Lawrence Brown in the show notes at whatisblack.co. Well that's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening. I'm grateful for your support and community. What is Black is hosted by Dr. Jacqueline Dujet and Music and editing by Manny Simone. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. And if you want to stay up to date about what's coming up this season, please sign up for our newsletter at whatisblack.co.